Thank you for downloading or podcasting this track. This recording has been remastered to provide the best sound possible given the audio environment of the original recording session. Mosaic Silver Spring is a faith community located just inside the Capitol Beltway in Montgomery County. For more information, please visit our website, www.mosaicsilverspring.org, and we'll see you in the neighborhood. Good morning, church. Um, You can find the scripture in the worship guide, or you can turn to Exodus 20, um, and then we're going to flip to Exodus 32, so a few different chunks here. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You should not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now in 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to them, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that, you are, that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it. And sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. 
and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the, were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joseph, excuse me, when Joshua heard the, the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, "There is a noise of war in, in the camp." But he said, "It is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear." And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, and he burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on, their, on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up, up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off so they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf and when Moses saw that the people had broken loose for Aaron had let them break loose to the diversion of the, their enemies when Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said who is on the Lord's side come to me and all the sons of Levi gathered around him and he said to them thus says the Lord God of Israel put your sword on your side each of you and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of the Lord. If you'll pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you are God. You are God here in the scripture, and you are God who is here with us today. I pray that you would um, open our hearts and our minds to understand your word. I pray that you would use Joel this morning um, to share and to teach. 
um, from your word. Help us to understand in a way that we can then, in turn, live your truth out in our lives. Um, We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, First, uh, thanks a lot to Kelly. That was a lot to read, and I appreciate her putting in the effort uh, to lead us through it. Second, like, why would we ask Kelly to read so much? Uh, Here's why. As a church, we think that Scripture is important and that God's Word stands alone in many ways. And so we believe in reading chunks of Scripture and not just trying to pull two or three excerpts uh, because we want you to engage. That's why we encourage you to open your own Bibles. That's why we encourage you to understand where the book of Exodus falls. Uh, And we encourage you generally as a church and as a community uh, to explore your faith by investing and spending time into reading God's Word. So thanks, Kelly, and that's why we do it. All right, uh, when our kids were growing up, there was uh, a book that I really enjoyed by Audrey Wood called The Napping House. Uh, It was my favorite book to read to them, in large part because it was short. Uh, And so when you're trying to get your kids to go to bed, at least for me, you're tired, it's late. And there was a building rhythm to The Napping House that I appreciated. The illustrations were great, uh, and uh, it wasn't super long. So it, it kind of hit a lot of the markers of what I would look for in terms of bedtime stories. And the Napping House is, uh, you know, the title, like in a lot of kids' books, kind of gives it away, right? It's, it's about a house where everyone is sleeping. Uh, granny is sleeping, a child is sleeping, a dog is sleeping, a cat is sleeping, a mouse is sleeping, except for the wakeful flea. There is a wakeful flea, and the story builds with the granny and the child and the dog and the cat and the mouse— Until you get to this turning moment in the unfolding narrative of the bedtime story of the wakeful flea that then triggers the mouse, that triggers the cat, that triggers the dog, that triggers the child, that triggers the granny, that breaks the bed. And so all these events in the story are driven by the wakeful flea. The one person being a live thing, not sleeping in the napping house. It creates this cascading series of events. This small thing that's just out of place, it's just slightly off, it's slightly different. There's one thing that's not in common with all the rest, and yet that one small thing can create a cascading series of effects that wakes up and impacts the whole house. This is how uh, sin functions in the life of God's people. Things are going well. God has redeemed his people out of Egypt. He has delivered to them the Ten Commandments. So he has brought them out of a land of slavery and oppression to foreign powers. He has broken the yoke of those authorities and powers, has brought them across the Red Sea, and is traveling with them toward the Promised Land, is providing for all of their daily needs, has given them the Ten Commandments, And uh, in the midst of giving instructions to Moses about how to build the tabernacle, this thing that you can find if you go back and you read uh, like Exodus starting around chapter 20, you get the Ten Commandments, then you get lots of instructions up until 31, and then you hit Exodus 32, and it's like it's the wakeful flea of the Exodus story. 
Exodus 32 through 34 is just kind of dropped in there. And we see the reality of what happens in people's lives when sin steers the direction of their worship. Here, that wakeful flea is introduced to us in verse 1 of the story. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. So I can't psychologize what the people were feeling or exactly what drove them. The text doesn't give it to us. Uh, Maybe it was impatience. Maybe it was a sense of isolation and fear because they were on their way to the promised land and they hadn't seen Moses and they couldn't see God and they didn't know what was happening. That, that seems legit. Like that could have been an option. It, it could have just been a sense of loneliness. Like, hey, we want to see somebody. I'm tired of manna. Where is Moses? I don't know. Can we just have something in front of us? I'm not sure whether it was uh, impatience, whether it was... Uh, fear, or whether it was loneliness, whether it was some combination of all these things. But they decide for themselves, we're going to go a different way. And the decision to ask Aaron to make for them a visible representation of God creates a cascading effect for the whole people of God, for all who are involved in a way in which uh, they see the reality of worship of God and its seriousness. For us, we may not struggle with taking our earrings off and fashioning them into gold-plated cows or calves or uh, some other type of being a bull, but the waking flea or wakeful flea is still around for us. We still struggle individually and as a community With the same types of things, whether it be uh, an impatience, where is God in the midst of my particular circumstances? That's something that we still struggle with. Whether it's anxiety, where is God? This is like serious times. I'm facing real trouble. Where is God? Or whether it's just a sense of loneliness. I want to see God. I want to be around others. I don't have the community that I think I want. I'm just going to go my own way. We still wrestle with maybe some combination of all of those things. The reality is in everyday life, there are things that will tug on our affections, attempting to pull our worship away from God. And in those moments, God calls us through the second commandment to hold fast through faith in Jesus. So in our everyday lives, there's going to be things that tug on your affections, that want to turn your worship away. Go some other direction with your worship. And it's in those moments that God gives us the second commandment and stories like the wakeful flea of Exodus 32 to remind us to hold fast because of our faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to look at that this morning in two points, going our own way and atoning for our sin. So after the people call on Aaron to uh, make for them 
uh, some visible representation up, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of this, become of him. This is like the ancient Near Eastern version of new phone. Who is this, right? Uh, This is like the guy who was like the visible representation of God's deliverance. The one that they had questions about at first, but confronted Pharaoh. The one who led the people when they feared for their lives, when the chariots and horses were pushing down upon them. The voice of leadership for them as they head to the promised land. And he's gone for like 40 days. And they're like, who's that guy? Moses. Their short memory betrays them as part of their redirection of worship. And so they tell Aaron, Moses' older brother, by the way, and a priest who should probably know better. And it's not clear, again, exactly what drives Aaron and his complicity here to go ahead and fashion new idols and redirect their worship. But what does Aaron do? He does it. He says, sure, bring me the supplies. I'll help you out. Bring me the gold and costly material. I'll help put something together for you. And so they do. And again, whether it's impatience or anxiety or fear or loneliness, they choose to go their own way. Now, there may be a creeping question for you this morning. Like, what's, uh, okay, so making idols is bad, and they made this golden calf that's bad? Like, what's so bad about it? Like, like, can you unpack this? I kind of understand where they're coming from. Let, let me just help make some connections for you that are subtle, but they're in the text if you go back and read it later. God routinely identifies himself. That We've read it every week as part of our series, that he is the one who brought them out of Egypt. When they direct their worship to this golden calf, and Aaron brings and and makes an altar in front of it, uh, which was typically done so that this idol can see their worship on the altar in front of it, they begin to ascribe to this golden thing that Aaron just made out of their earrings. This is what brought us up out of the land of Egypt. It's the same phrase that the people begin to give over to this chunk of metal that they just made. And so it's more that they just, more than they just made something. It's that they assault the work that God has done out of his gracious, loving kindness for this people. And they give it over to the chunk of metal that they had just made. Moreover, not only do they ascribe kind of the works of redemption. Oh, this is now the thing that brought us up out of the land of Egypt. No, but this is what they're saying. They say, yeah, make us an altar. Let's sacrifice to it as well. And so they begin to make offerings to it as if uh, this is their hope in life and in death from this point moving forward. So the danger of uh, making grave images or worshiping and redirecting your worship to idols is not only uh, that God is spirit and you can't uh, make or take something from creation and replicate the creator God who made our world that never works. It's more than that. It's that they gave it their worship, the praise and honor and glory and thankfulness that God is due for his redemption, they gave it over to this chunk of metal. The sense of 
uh, peace, the pursuit of reconciliation, the goal of forgiveness that they were pursuing through sacrifices don't go to God himself, but instead to this chunk of metal. That's what gets at the offensiveness of making this grave damage. It's not only that they tried to make something or take something from creation that replicated the creator God, which you can't do and which God had told them don't do. It's that moreover, they began to give it their worship. They began to look to it for hope. They, in the midst of all that they're struggling with, they turn to it, the thing they made. And, and God sees this. And is offended. And that may be putting it lightly. God's anger is stirred, we're told. You get the sense here of the relationship, the covenant relationship between God and his people. He's delivered them. He's provided for them. He's giving them direction. He's raised up leaders. He's met their needs. And they've taken the worship that he's due as part of the relationship between God and his people. And they've given it over to this idol. David Pallison was a professor at Westminster Seminary and a counselor and wrote quite a bit. And he has an article called Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. It was written some time ago, but I reread it in preparation for this week and found this quote that I felt helpful to connect to our lives. Pallison writes, The simple picture of idolatry, a worship prostrated before a figure of wood, metal, or stone, is powerfully extended by the Bible. What he's trying to say here and what follows is that we can make the mistake of thinking that idolatry just involves wood or gold earrings or some metal. He's going to say that as you track idolatry through the rest of Scripture all the way to the pages of the New Testament, it begins to extend and involve more. This is helpful because if you're here this morning, you're like, man, I'm really safe on the second commandment because I don't even know how to take metal earrings and turn it into anything. Uh, Then... uh, has something to say to you because he's going to say, well, wait, because the New Testament, it extends what idolatry means in ways that you may not be as exempt from as you thought you were. Ballison writes, it's powerfully extended by the Bible. Idolatry becomes a concept with which to comprehend the intricacies of both individual motivation and social conditioning. The idols of the heart lead us to defect from God in many ways. In his article, he unpacks how individual motivation, the things that drive you, what gets you excited in life, what captures your attention and energy and creativity, in your free moments, what are you devoted to? Pallison's saying, through the pages of Scripture, that can take you down a road of idolatry in ways that don't involve carved images at all. He also impacts in his article that social conditioning can do the same thing. Basically, the way in which we live in a specific time and place, it will come with unique cultural pressures to divert our worship and encourage us to defect from turning to God. 
right? Does that happen for us today? 100%. To the extent that our culture says to you, hey, all that matters is who you know and what you have, and then you begin to reorient your life uh, toward who you know and what you have, those are social conditioning pressures to divert your worship, if that becomes ultimate in meaning to you. It can also uh, uh, be the ways in which you just use your free time, the ways in which you pursue things, the ways in which you think about what defines me and makes me important, whether that's society's message to you that what makes you most important is whatever makes you happy, or whether it's the message that what makes you important is what you have accomplished, or what makes you important is if you've made your family happy and met their expectations. All of those things, uh, if they become the ultimate definition of who you are, you're taking the worship that's due God and giving it over to something else. You're defecting from God. This expanded picture of idolatry uh, in 1 John, at, at the ending of this small letter of 1 John, it's just five chapters, it's almost on the other side of your Bible, so you'd have to turn almost to the other end. Uh, John, through this short letter, spends much of his time explaining to people, please just love God and love one another. It sounds a lot like the summary that we talked about in the opening introduction of the rule of love, to just try to love one another. His last warning. Morning. The closing note is little children, and, and that's in a term of affection for us. Friends, keep yourselves from idols. That's John's closing to 1 John. Friends, keep yourselves from idols. He's saying, hey, in this extended picture and with the powerful social forces that we face, plus that wakeful flea of our own sinful predilections, we have to be careful to watch over ourselves and over one another. So that when we are in a spot of fear and we feel out of control, that we don't take our worship someplace else. Or when we're lonely and it feels like God is far away and we're tempted to craft something that can be closer by to us, something that can bring us comfort. You can see how in some sense, like, it's fine to want to feel closer to God. It's fine when you wrestle with fear to want that comfort and peace. What the commandment and the story from Exodus 32 is warning you about is be careful not to take up your worship and start redirecting it other places. Don't forget to order your lives and affections the way that God has shaped our world and our lives. That's the challenge to us. And so where does that leave us? atoning for our sin. The ways in which we struggle, the ways in which we've given our worship over already, the ways in which we're fighting this morning not to give our worship to other things, where does that leave us? It's a bit of a fascinating text, and if you guys want to pursue this in Q&A later, I'm glad to because there's a lot here, and I'm not going to be able to cover it all, frankly, because how can you in one short sermon? But I'll say that something of note here is that Moses tries to atone for the people. Moses' impulse through this story, despite the redirection of the people's affections and attention, Moses cares about them, and Moses knows God. Remember, he was up on the mountain, 
And he tries to mediate on their behalf. He does it in a few different passages. In verses 11 through 14, he appeals to God's character. God, you're God. You've brought them out. You've loved them. You've placed your name upon them. You've redeemed them. Don't judge them now. And then in 30 to 34, Moses tells the people, I'm going to have to go to the Lord and try to make this right on your behalf. So the impulse of the prophet and leader Moses is to mediate and do business with the sin of his people. And at the end of the story, when he goes to do it, God gives him, depending on how you read the text, either a soft or a hard, no, it's not going to do it. And so it leaves this question in the air of like, okay, wait, so Moses wasn't involved with any of this. He was exempted from all of it. He appeals to God's character. He's the prophet and the one who's been kind of involved all to this point. And he goes to God and he's like, listen, God, I'll give myself. I want to mediate for the people. I want to watch out for them. And God's like, yeah, it's not going to work. It's not going to do it. And so that leaves us wondering like, okay, so where does that leave us? The good news for us as Christians is that just as Moses wasn't enough, just as you and I aren't enough, just as our own effort in trying to keep the law isn't enough, that God himself steps in to send a prophet who is enough. That when Jesus arrives, it's a pulling together of those two appeals that Moses makes. Moses' attempts at mediation through appealing to God's character and through offering of himself come to real fruition and fulfillment in atoning for not only their sins but for our sins in Jesus Christ. So that Jesus is the only one who has the character who can give himself to do business for the sins of the people. And Jesus is the one, the prophet, who's willing to do it. This is what makes it possible for us to go back and read these stories and to understand and know about the reality of sin in our lives, but to do it as a people who don't despair. As a people who face fear, and anxiety, and loneliness, but don't have to just give in and say, well, there's no hope. Part of what's unique and good, and even, dare I say, hope-filled in a hard world, is the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. That that actually means something when it comes to the business of atoning for our sin for you and for me. And it's not something that you have to earn. It's not something that you have to memorize the commandments to clean yourself up with. It is freely offered. So that when we're tempted to go our own way and do it on our own, we can turn back to Jesus. That when we recognize uh, the fearful spot of having given our worship to other things or having our attention diverted or uh, pouring in all of who we are and the deepest of our affections to things other than God and we're left wondering what is to happen to us now, we can freely turn to Jesus in faith. He 
unites us to himself. He treads the path forward for us. The author of Hebrews, uh, when he's writing of Jesus as the trailblazer of faith, the, the one who cuts the path down to create the way of atonement for you and for me, puts it this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses that includes Moses and all of those who turned in faith in Exodus 32, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What that means for us, friends, is that in the face of our fears, whether our fears are that we're not good enough or we don't know where God is or that someone may get us, we can turn to Jesus and cling tightly to him because he is the author and perfecter of faith who's run the race, knows the way, atones for our sins, and leads us forward. In the midst of our anxiety over how things are going to turn out, we can turn to him, the one who made the one sacrifice for all, and sat down because it's finished and it's now freely offered to you. So you don't have to wring your hands over whether you have to clean yourself up enough. When we feel alone, we can turn to him. The one who freely offers his life for ours, unites himself to us, who pours his spirit out into our lives and promises, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's the Christian hope. Not that somehow we have to live life perfectly and not that somehow we have to make up for our own imperfections, but rather that we can turn in faith to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith who's done it for us. When we're tempted to divert our attention, our worship to other things, let us instead set aside be reminded by the cloud of witnesses and look to Jesus. Let me pray. God, I ask that you'll watch over us as a community and that we will live lives that are marked by giving you our full affection, by giving you all of our worship, by not becoming entangled or distracted, but by clinging tight to you, Jesus, in both the high moments and the low, we ask. Amen.